I'm Dan Kimbrough, and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. Here we go again. Another black person has needlessly died at the hands of the police, and the streets have erupted with anger and protest. While I could be more specific, something tells me that leaving it anonymous will work better, as you can share this episode with a new friend the next time the police needlessly kill a black person. In the coming days, you'll hear or read in the comments, well, what about black-on-black crime? Where are all the protests when black people kill each other? How many black people were killed in? fill in the name of the large metropolitan city here, last weekend. Black people kill each other all the time. Why do I have to care when a cop does it? Black-on-black crime is a fallacy. Black-on-black crime is actually just crime. But over the last few decades, the term has come to represent an argument or rebuttal whenever the black community speaks out against violence at the hands of the police or other entities. In reality, it's a scapegoat or a deterrent from the real issue. The crimes are real, but so are the systemic factors that play a part in them. There's no denying that crime exists in the black community, just as it does in all communities. But when we look deeper, we can see that there are systemic issues and forces that have been proven to increase criminal activity in any community. Most crimes, and murder in specific, are crimes of proximity. When we look at American cities, the effects of redlining, segregation, and other things can be seen everywhere. When it comes to murder with an individual offender and an individual victim, offenders don't tend to travel. That's something you see more with mass murder, but even then, it's usually the same city or region. The notion that black people kill more black people than other races is actually correct. But this is also true of other races. The FBI reports on crime statistics every year and has a section that looks at individual offender, individual victim homicide. Over 80% of the murders with white victims are committed by white offenders. Even when you look at the category other, which includes Native American and Alaska Natives, Asians, Native Hawaiians, and other Pacific Islanders, FBI terms and categories, not mine, you will find that 56% of homicide victims that fall into the other category are murdered by offenders in the same category. The reality is that most racial groups are the number one offenders against themselves. Another aspect to take into account when dispelling the notion of black-on-black crime, specifically in response to protests against police brutality, is that the crimes between black people aren't because they are black. They aren't targeting each other because of race. Though research and data have shown time and time again that white officers have a bias against black people and treat them differently. As a result, police are killing black people 
on the basis of crime. We've seen white, armed men draw on the police, spit on them, commit murder, and even storm the Capitol and be led away in handcuffs and have the chance to stand trial. So, crime within the black community and police targeting and killing black people are not the same, and it's a very dangerous and unfair parallel to draw. Another misconception that the black-on-black crime argument perpetuates is that black people don't care about crime and murder within the black community, and only protest and march when it happens at the hands of the police. To make the argument that black communities don't care ignores two of many important factors. The first being that black communities have been in a constant struggle to clean up neighborhoods and reduce gun violence. This fight has been happening for years, and in some communities, decades. Community cookouts, marches, basketball tournaments, church functions, after-school programs, summits, peace talks, and so on. These efforts have been a mainstay in the black community for far too long, often happening to the blind and ignorant eye of city leaders in the white community. Before George Floyd and Breonna Taylor brought America to a new consciousness, the black community had already been fighting for justice from the police and to keep their neighborhoods safe. Programs aimed at helping marginalized groups, usually meaning black and brown communities, are often underfunded and the first to be cut when the government budget tightens. Black schools get the least attention and funding and are often the lowest performing, not because the students can't handle the work, but because of socioeconomic factors, lack of resources and opportunities, physical learning conditions, and more. And community functions put on by black communities are rarely covered and supported by the city or region they are in. Black communities know what's needed to help make improvements and have been shouting it for years, but the time and investments needed are rarely made available. The idea that a community that has been systematically oppressed and depressed is supposed to overcome intended hurdles without any support is asinine, and equating the conditions of the black community with cops committing murder is malicious. The second is the circumstances that lead to crime overall. Crime rates in the black community are higher, but as stated, black communities and neighborhoods face a consistent uphill battle. We know from research and studies that there are plenty of factors that lead to someone committing a crime. Unemployment, creating neighborhoods that are overwhelmed with poverty, healthcare needs, lack of security, and more. All of this, plus redlining, mass incarceration, an unjust legal system, and the lingering effects of Jim Crow and slavery have weighed even heavier on black communities. While this doesn't serve as an excuse, it does shed light on the causes of these rates. But when discussing crime in the black community, these factors are often left out. How can a system that created these situations and benefits from elevated crime rates blame the community and take no fault? Black communities were never designed to succeed, and when they do, they're often destroyed. But that's for another episode. In reality, black people are the only ones doing the work to end violence and crime in their communities, and it's because we're the only ones who care. The only time black crime gets brought up is when others want to make the black community look bad for standing up to police brutality. So, if black-on-black crime is just a form of deflection and a talking point used to mass discussing real issues, why does it keep getting brought up and where does it come from? Well, that becomes a history lesson, a long one. When looking at American policing, 
one can find its origins in the antebellum South. Before we had police, we had slave patrols. White citizens were allowed to track down and return slaves to slave masters if they believed them to be runaways or that their masters didn't know of their whereabouts. Later, citizens began creating patrols that would not only apprehend and return slaves, but would also terrorize and deter slaves from revolting. These patrols were also used for disciplinary actions outside of the law. Patrols were eventually given permission and duty by local governments to deal with slaves. While patrols looked different in each of the colonies, some being picked by militias, others by lottery, they all served the same function. As listed on the National Law Enforcement Museum's website, the patrollers would swear an oath to use the trust given to them by the law to patrol their districts and control slaves, search slaves for weapons, and return runaway slaves to their owners. The argument for these patrols was that slave owners and citizens lived in a constant fear of slave rebellions that would disrupt the economics of the South. So, policing black communities was born. In the book Slave Patrols, Law and Violence in Virginia and the Carolinas by Sally Hayden, she writes, quote, The history of police work in the South grows out of this early fascination by white patrollers with what African-American slaves were doing. Most law enforcement was, by definition, white patrolmen watching, catching, or beating black slaves, end quote. It's also worth noting the parallels between the actions and functions of these early slave patrols and the actions and impacts of the KKK. The first time we see a formal police force is in the early 1900s in the Northeast when they were tasked with watching over the labor class and protecting property of the rich. As time has gone on, the underlying role of enforcing social order within undesired groups and protecting those with means and wealth hasn't deviated much. Now, not all cities had police forces, but it can be argued that you can follow the growth and prominence of local police departments over the next few decades by following where black communities moved during the Great Migration. As black people who under Jim Crow were kept from educational, financial, political, and social gains began to move north in swelling numbers, the population and makeup of many cities began to change. Fear of black youth, young black men in particular, becoming explosive and heated during these frustrated times led the Kennedy administration to enact some of the first social welfare programs across the country, including what would become Head Start, setting up job training, placing social workers in poor communities, and so on. Realizing that many of the grievances of the black community centered around resources and opportunities that had been withheld, the goal was to provide services that would help alleviate the frustration and anger the community had. In 1964, riots broke out in Harlem after... Wait for it. A white police officer shot a young black boy. The police officer, Lieutenant Gilligan, claimed the 15-year-old had a knife. During the search of the scene, the knife was never found. Later on, wedged in a gutter nearby, the supposed knife eventually showed up. In an attempt to ease tension within the community, Harlem implemented social programs and offered services with the hope of avoiding another uprising. Similarly, in 1965, after a traffic stop turned violent and ended with complaints of police violence, the Watts riots took place and six days of civil unrest erupted. President Lyndon B. Johnson declared a war on crime and argued these events were not related to the civil rights movement and should not be viewed in the same lens. 
He had previously enacted policies in the war and poverty the year before that created and funded community-based programs that were effective in helping with social justice issues. With the new war on crime, local police were militarized and part of the funding was used to convince social welfare programs and social workers to begin working hand-in-hand with the police, courts, and prisons. The foundation for the school-to-prison pipeline had been laid. In 1968, the first appearance of the phrase Black on Black appears when a reporter writes, quote, Black on Black. A black crime against a black gets canceled out in the mind of a white precinct commander. End quote. Remember this notion. During the Nixon era, things changed dramatically. Instead of staying the course with cost-effective and efficient community-based programs that were working, he dissolved many of them and poured money into policing, incentivizing states to build more prisons, and began the police surveillance of urban neighborhoods. With surveillance comes more police officers in black communities. But they weren't there to protect and serve. It's more watching, catching, and enforcing social constructs. We now have an era in the 70s. We now have an era in the 70s where there are increased militarized police units surveilling and patrolling black communities. You also have the loss of effective programs to help with poverty, unemployment, healthcare, and so on. Crime in America as a whole is on the rise and is reaching a boiling point in the black community. Crime within America as a whole is on the rise and is reaching a boiling point within black communities. A columnist for the Chicago Defender, the same newspaper credited with the first appearance of the phrase black on black, interviews a neighborhood hustler about why he robs other black people within his community. He responds with, quote, We go where business is and the man ain't looking. Can you see me going up to Deerfield, black as I am, trying to stick up? The man would be on me so fast I couldn't get a chewing gum wrapper. Out here, the man is too busy whooping them panthers and giving tickets to mess with me. Anyway, he don't care if niggers get ripped off. But you can bet he's watching his thing back in his own hood. End quote. Remember, a black crime against a black gets canceled out in the mind of a white precinct commander. Crimes are being committed by proximity and ease. During the late 70s, the term went through significant changes. Early on, many in the black community used the term in recognition of how the elevated crime rate came to be, pointing to disenfranchisement and social conditions. But local news stations and well-intentioned black and white individuals began using the phrase in a way that solely placed responsibility and remedy within the black community, ignoring all other factors and the reality that it wasn't really a racial matter. If white kids were in the same conditions, the results would have been the exact same, because crime is crime and is predictable. But this didn't lend to the new narrative of dangerous black communities that need policing, one that President Reagan would go on to embrace. During the 80s, the Reagan administration implements a zero-tolerance policy, often referred to as the broken windows policy. The policy said that environments that had visible signs of crime, antisocial behavior, and civil disorder would encourage further crime. Thus, increased policing would help to enforce and restore law and order, place an increased police presence in derelict or slum communities, and overly police minor crimes diligently, like fair jumping, vandalism, traffic violations, jaywalking, etc., and what you get is an air of lawfulness in being tough on crime. The Reagan era also saw the criminalization of drug abuse. This is important. 
Cocaine had become extremely popular in America, and plenty of people were using it. Crack cocaine, or crack rock, essentially the same drug in a different form, became popular as well. Chemically, the drugs are almost identical. The difference comes down to how the drug is taken. Cocaine, as a powder, is snorted, injected, or swallowed. Crack is solidified in rock form and is smoked. Crack is cheaper, faster-acting, and has a shorter high. That's the entire difference between the two. During this time period, during this time period, reports began swirling that crack cocaine was becoming an epidemic. Unfounded reports stated that it made you instantly addicted, was far more powerful, and made you violent. Because of this, the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act was passed. Amongst other things, it made owning or possessing 5 grams of crack carry a mandatory minimum sentence of 5 years in federal prison. Powder cocaine, though, you would need almost 100 times that amount, 500 grams, which was almost a pound, to trigger the exact same punishment. Because crack was cheaper, easy to produce, and easy to distribute, it found its way into poor black communities more often than cocaine. This meant that black communities, already devastated from crime and drugs, were now suffering as those struggling from drug misuse were being sentenced for longer periods and being hit with a federal record for being in possession of a fraction of what white people could possess with cocaine and only be slept with a misdemeanor. Before the 1986 Anti-Drug Act, black communities were experiencing 11% longer sentences than white communities for drug offenses. After the act, 49% longer, with no actual evidence that crack was worse. On top of all of this, Reagan also begins to cut people from the food stamp registry, famously using the welfare queen image, and to cut school lunch programs and other social programs. By this point, the term has become commonplace in America. White flight has been justified by black criminal elements. By this point, the term has become commonplace in American culture. White flight has been justified by the black criminal element. The over and mass incarceration of black youth has been justified. And over-policing of black communities has been justified as well. Given all of these measures were meant to surveil and control rather than assist black communities, there's an overabundance of police placed within the community. They're finding drugs and making arrests at an alarming rate. This all goes into the data about crime, drugs, and hotspots. This data then justifies their presence and the narrative about the black community. But what's not happening at the same level is vigilance within white communities. We know that white youth use drugs at the same rate, if not higher, than black youth. But with no one patrolling their neighborhoods, it goes unnoticed. Well, until the modern-day opioid epidemic which for some odd reason is given a lot more compassion and leniency than the crack epidemic. But I digress. Given what we know about the causes of higher crime and drug rates, and if you throw in decades of systemic oppression, white communities would have the exact same issues. Any community would. In 1994, a new crime bill is passed. In an attempt to look tough on crime, Democrats led by one Joe Biden and supported by the Congressional Black Caucus pass a sweeping bill that adds even more police to the streets, increases funding for militarization, extends sentencing requirements, and gives more incentives to hold criminals longer. The Congressional Black Caucus is worried about the devastation taking place in black communities. Crime is soaring everywhere, and crack has ravaged poor communities. 
On top of this, the bill also includes the Violence Against Women Act and funding for crime prevention and drug prevention. When pressed on passing something that will most likely escalate the problem, but provide help in other areas, the majority of the Congressional Black Caucus votes to approve the bill, seeing it as something that they had to put their stamp on. Overall, the Congressional Black Caucus agrees to the bill because they want better policing and to get tough on drugs. As a side note, there were those in the Congressional Black Caucus that voted against the bill and felt that they should have found another way. Some of those names include John Lewis, Maxine Waters, and John Conyers. Because of the 1986 Act, the effect of the 1994 bill are devastating when it comes to drug sentencing. It's not until 2010 that sentencing disparity between cocaine and crack drops from a 100 to 1 ratio to an 18 to 1 ratio. But at this point, people serving had had their lives and the lives of their loved ones destroyed. If your argument is, well, that's what you get for doing drugs, examine how the crack epidemic, mainly a black one, was handled compared to our current opioid epidemic, one that hits mainly white and rural areas. When it comes to better policing, wording is key. At the time of the 1994 bill, it was assumed that the want for more policing in communities meant more cops more often. But in reality, they wanted better policing. During the 1980s and 90s, police response time to black communities were much slower than to white communities, which, if you maintain a heavy presence in black communities, should not be an issue. Slower response times included response times to everything, from crime to medical emergencies. And in the situation of medical emergencies, being 15 minutes late could mean death. Also, interactions with police weren't the kind that instilled confidence and a sense of safety. In fighting the crime and drug epidemic, black communities wanted the same interactions and engagement that white communities got. Not continual harassment in their own neighborhoods and feeling threatened, plus slow response times to where they were needed the most. All of this leads us to today. We live in a society that is sadly only a few steps away from the antebellum South. Now, people love to say, look how far we've come, but I don't know who we is. Because we still have a heavier presence of patrolling in black communities. In fact, in most communities that have large amounts of persons of color, you will find heavier police presences. We still have patrols pushing the narrative of keeping peace and creating law and order, when in reality, they're just terrorizing neighborhoods. We still have these patrols making life or death decisions and arguing that it's their right and duty to do so. And we still have a system that chooses to ignore its place in the oppression, depression, and inhibiting of persons of color. Black-on-black crime is a myth that has become a stereotype about black communities, one that continues to have deadly consequences. The struggles and hurdles of the black community were placed upon them intentionally, and at every turn, rather than offer compassion and assistance, we are hit with blame, terror, and the ever-vigilant reminder of how America views us. So the next time you see the headline, Cop Shoots and Kills Black Suspect, City Erupts into Protest, you'll now understand the nuance and context that headline contains. And you'll know that the perception of extreme violence and crime in the black community is one that's been crafted over time to serve as the justification of the government for over-policing and murdering of black bodies, just like in the antebellum South. Systemic is a production of Park Multimedia. Thank you for taking the time to listen and remember, to solve any problem, you have to first acknowledge that it exists.